Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This episode contains distressing themes and descriptions of violence. This podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener caution is advised. It was usually quiet on the Clough in Murfield, West Yorkshire, and the bank holiday Monday morning of May 7th, 2007 was no different. The stone terrace houses built on a slanting road in the Battiford area of the town were less than a mile from where the notable authors the Bronte sisters had attended school. Murfield had a relatively low crime rate compared to other small towns in West Yorkshire, but by 9.15am that morning everything changed when one neighbour heard someone banging on his door and screaming for help. He recognised the blonde woman on his doorstep. It was his neighbour's granddaughter, Joanne Hussey. There was urgency and distress in Joanne's voice as she explained she had just found her 76-year-old grandmother, Annie Garper, dead. Joanne asked her neighbour to look after her daughter while she called for an ambulance. Emergency responders arrived within minutes and approached the two-bedroom cottage. Joanne was waiting for them at the door, before leading them upstairs to her grandmother's bedroom. The paramedics pulled back the quilt and found the frail pensioner lying on bloody sheets. Blood spatter covered the walls near the bed. Due to the highly suspicious nature of Annie's death, the police were immediately contacted. Welcome to Season 8, Episode 36 of They Walk Among Us, a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. (laughs) 
Widow Annie Garbutt had lived alone for just over a decade since her husband Joseph passed away in 1996. As Annie aged, she had been diagnosed with dementia as a result of progressive Alzheimer's disease. In 2007, her care needs had increased and she required a considerable amount of support for daily living. Annie had assistance three times a day to help care for her at home, allowing her to retain as much independence as possible. Her condition was steadily worsening, and it was predicted the care plan would not be suitable for Annie much longer as she needed specialist care. Describing how Annie had a daughter who came to see her regularly, a neighbour on the clough later spoke about the challenges Annie faced. We always got on fine, and she was very friendly and polite, but her condition had been getting worse. It had been getting to the stage where she didn't recognise family or regular visitors to the house. Prior to that, she had always been a very active person and would regularly go off on walks all over Yorkshire on her own. Annie's daughter, 56-year-old Maureen Hussey, would come to the house most days to check on her mother and see if she needed anything. By April 2007, it had become clear to social workers the time had come for Annie to move to a residential home so she could have full-time care. During the post-mortem of Annie Garbutt's body, the extent of her injuries became clear. The pathologist found multiple lacerations on Annie's face, neck and chest. Other injuries were more severe. An x-ray showed six fractured ribs, a broken breastbone, a skull fracture, multiple facial fractures, a broken bone in her neck and catastrophic head injuries. Some cuts and bruises to her arms and hands suggested that she had tried to defend herself when she was attacked. It was concluded upon a detailed examination that someone had kneeled on her chest as they struck her multiple times with a heavy object. In total, Annie had sustained almost 30 internal and external injuries. The West Yorkshire Constabulary launched a murder investigation. As is routine, the first person to be questioned was the person who found Annie's body, a 33-year-old granddaughter, Joanne Hussey. Joanne Hussey told the police she had driven to Murfield that morning from her home 17 miles away on Grange Mount in Yeadon. Joanne said that she had been at home the previous night. She was looking after her 10-year-old daughter Josephine who had disabilities and complex care needs. According to Joanne, her evening was uneventful. She watched two films, Bridget Jones's Diary and Dirty Dancing. Afterwards, she went to bed. She had told first responders that she went to her grandmother's that morning to collect her mobile phone but when she arrived, she saw the front door was ajar. Concerned for her grandmother especially, she had dementia. Joanne immediately rushed inside to make sure Annie was all right. 
describing how she noticed blood on the walls when she entered the bedroom. Joanne said she had tried to lift her grandmother up, but when she couldn't, she had covered Annie's body with a quilt and ran to alert the neighbours. Joanne spoke to the police about her theory that somebody had broken in and killed her grandmother as she slept. However, the scene had been thoroughly investigated, and there was no evidence to suggest a break-in. Joanne Hussey and her brother Richard were raised by their mother Maureen. Their parents separated when Joanne was around six years old. She was left with memories of a violent home life from when her mother and father were still a couple. Something else that stuck with Hussey in later life was the lasting scar of being bullied for her weight while she was in school. She left further education at the age of 17 without finishing an A-level in art. In 1994, the then 20-year-old met Gary Punchin, a man nine years her senior. They both worked for Royal Mail at a sorting office near Leeds City Centre. Everything seemed to be going well for the couple, and they planned to start a family. However, Gary would later say things changed when Hussey fell pregnant in 1995. Their daughter Josephine was born in 1996, and from that point on, Hussey's behaviour and mental state worsened. Mental health services were first contacted the following year. After a particularly bad argument with Gary that culminated in him telling his partner he was leaving, Hussey took an overdose swallowing 75 paracetamol tablets. Gary later revealed that Hussey had been having an affair and she often threatened to end her life when they fought. Hussey was observed in the hospital before being discharged the next day. A follow-up appointment was planned for two weeks later. The doctor recorded that Hussey had a low mood that could be attributed to the breakdown of her relationship. It was a period of high stress for the couple as their daughter Josephine was being assessed to see if she had a disability. Hussey left the home she shared with Gary Punchin and along with their daughter moved in with her mother Maureen and brother Richard. A few months later in 1998... Hussey and Gary learned that Josephine had a severe developmental delay and would require constant care and support. Amidst this turn of events, Gary Punchin and Joanne Hussey decided to give their relationship another try and got back together. It didn't last long, as Gary was physically attacked by his partner in the summer of that year. As a result of the assault... Joanne Hussey was charged with battery. She explained in a police interview that she was suffering from postnatal depression. Her life became even more turbulent when Hussey briefly stopped talking to her mother, meaning she had to leave the family home. Running out of options, she moved in with her grandmother Annie Garbutt. Annie's husband had died two years earlier, and she was happy to have her granddaughter and great-granddaughter to keep her company. 
While Hussey and her mother's relationship was strained, Josephine was often cared for by her grandmother, Maury. Over the next few years, there was a marked decline in Joanne Hussey's mental health. She was diagnosed with depression and was referred to a community occupational therapist. Hussey was still eager to resume her relationship with Gary Punchin, despite a recent conviction of battery for assaulting him. Soon thereafter, Hussey's health visitor told the occupational therapist that she felt Hussey was not depressed, but obsessed with Gary, and that was why she had attacked him. A referral was made to a community psychiatric nurse, but Hussey failed to make contact or accept any services she was offered. In November 2005, Joanne Hussey and Gary Punchin had an argument over money. The disagreement came to an abrupt end when she stabbed him in the back with a kitchen knife. The incident was reported to the police, but Gary Punchin declined to press charges. Struggling to cope, Joanne Hussey went to her GP in August 2006 and confided to a doctor that she was having suicidal thoughts. A referral was made to the Leeds Partnership NHS Foundation Trust so Hussey could receive specialist mental health support. During this time, she was also suspended from her job at the Royal Mail Sorting Office. She had a blazing row with Gary about taking Josephine on holiday, and Hussey attacked Gary in front of their colleagues. A consultant psychiatrist signed her off work, and Hussey attended the acute day unit in St Mary's Hospital in Leeds for several months. Gary decided he could no longer be involved with Hussey and began a relationship with someone else. Hussey was not happy. In mid-October 2006, she showed up outside his home for the second time in two weeks. She was hostile and aggressive, shouting and kicking his door. Not knowing what to do, Gary asked her to come inside and talk. The invitation was accepted, but any chance of a calm resolution went up in smoke when Joanne Hussey assaulted Gary's new girlfriend. Once again, Hussey was arrested and charged with battery. In an appointment with her psychiatrist, Hussey said that she did not feel responsible for the assault and passed the blame to Gary Punchin. It came to light that Hussey felt insecure throughout their relationship because they had come from different backgrounds. Hussey told her psychiatrist that she believed Gary's mother never thought she was good enough for him. Hussey said, I came from a council estate. His family are very wealthy. During a subsequent conversation, Hussey told her psychiatrist that she only had her daughter because she thought it would make Gary love her, and realising that would never be the case, she was beginning to resent her child. Hussey was diagnosed with type 2 bipolar disorder and prescribed lithium and antipsychotic medication. Her attendance at the day unit between September and November 2006 was poor, 
and she did not attend daily as she had initially agreed. She was eventually discharged just before December of that year, when her mood seemed to have improved. She continued to engage with mental health services on an intermittent basis, and one of her psychiatrists wrote a court report when the battery case for the assault on Gary Punchin's new girlfriend went to trial in April 2007. Despite Joanne Hussey telling a different doctor that she did not feel responsible for the assault, the consultant wrote, she has expressed remorse for the alleged offence. I think that she does pose a risk of violence to others in the future, but only when mentally ill. I think the severity of this risk is relatively low and can be reduced further by appropriate treatment of her mental illness. At the end of that month, Hussey was discharged and taken off antipsychotic medication because she told her consultant Dr Hughes she hadn't needed it for several weeks. The doctor was convinced Joanne Hussey was in remission and fit to return to work. Nine days later, Annie Garbutt was killed in her own bed. Investigators believe that Joanne Hussey was capable of murdering her grandmother due to her offending history and statements from co-workers. On May 9th, 2007, two days after Annie Garbutt's body was found, the police contacted a man named Salvatore Cremona. Salvatore worked with Joanne Hussey and had been one of the three men working in the postal service whom she had a sexual relationship with. He told the police that Hussey had sent a text message to him a week earlier on the evening of April 29th. It read, Got to grandmother's earlier and found her dead. Police had been, and she'd been taken away. Head totally done in, in need of a friend. Salvatore said that he'd called Joanne Hussey a few days later and asked when the funeral was. She said she didn't know. When it was reported that Annie Garbutt had been murdered and he heard that Joanne Hussey was being questioned, Salvatore Cremona was shocked and felt that the text message was important information. Speaking with other co-workers, the detectives heard that Joanne Hussey had told several people that at one point she had hit her grandmother and pulled her hair during an argument in a car. There was also mention of Annie Garbutt's finances and what Joanne Hussey planned to do with her grandmother's money. Suspecting that Joanne Hussey could have killed the woman who gave her a place to stay when no one else would, investigators reviewed footage taken from automatic number plate recognition cameras along the route from Yeadon to Murfield. They saw Hussey's car travelling from her home in Yeadon towards her grandmother's late on the night of May 6th, 2007. Joanne Hussey was arrested on suspicion of murder on May 8th, and while she was being questioned, forensic officers searched her home. They tested for the presence of blood on different parts of the interior of her car, but nothing showed up. 
Officers also look through Hussey's washing basket and wardrobes to see if there are any blood-stained items. A white top was found in the bathroom with small red stains. Swabs were taken from the base and drain in the bathtub. It tested positive for traces of blood. Officers also noticed a dirty spade in the garage that seemed out of place. On closer inspection, it was determined that blood and soil coated the metal tip. Forensic tests would later conclude that all of the blood found matched Annie Garbutt's DNA, and there was evidence that Joanne Hussey had tried her best to hide it. Detective Constable Beverly Garnett confronted Joanne Hussey with these new developments on May 10th, several days after the murder. The 33-year-old initially denied any involvement, but it didn't take long before she admitted to bludgeoning her grandmother to death. However, Hussey had an explanation. I didn't know what I was doing, she said. I heard the voices and they have been able to control me. In response to DC Garnet's questioning, Hussey claimed she couldn't remember how she got to her grandmother's house, yet had flashbacks of Annie being asleep in bed when she walked into her room and started to hit her with a spade. I just wanted the voices to stop. I just wanted them to stop. I didn't want to hurt my grandma. They were saying that she's bad, that she's a bad person, and to sort it out and to kill her, to hit her hard and not be scared. According to Hussey, the voices in her head that wouldn't stop were male, and one sounded like her late grandfather. Hussey told the detective, I love my grandmother so much. She was like a mum to me. The voices were telling me to kill her, and all I remember is me hitting her on the head with a spade. It was just telling me to do it harder and harder. It was just like a flashback. The next thing Hussey remembered was seeing her grandmother lying in bed covered in blood. The voices wanted me to kill her because they wanted her dead. It's frightening to think I could do something that you don't know what you have done. It's awful. It's frightening me. While speaking to a psychologist following her arrest, Joanne Hussey said that she had drunk a third of a bottle of Baileys on the night in question, but insisted it was the voices in her head that drove her to kill. Hussey was charged with murder on May 11th, 2007 at Batley and Dewsbury Magistrates Court and remanded into custody at New Hall Women's Prison. At a brief hearing on September 13th, Hussey pleaded not guilty to murder and was committed to stand trial at Leeds Crown Court. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode of They Walk Among Us is brought to you in association with Centair. Ever entered a seemingly perfect space only to feel like something was missing? That's where Centair comes in. With over three decades of experience, Centair leads the scent marketing industry, scenting resorts, retail outlets, event spaces and more, partnering with major brands like Westin Hotels and Snap Fitness. Chances are you've already encountered their fragrances firsthand. And now Centair is offering you a luxury fragrance experience in the comfort of your home. Visit Centair.com to explore their online store and infuse your spaces with unforgettable scents. Centair diffusers are sleek and fill your space with vivid fragrance for up to 300 hours. And the Centair app lets you schedule your fragrance and control your intensity right from your phone. What's more, all of Centair's more than 60 fragrances are phthalate-free, cruelty-free, safe for families and EcoVad is certified sustainable. Differentiate your space with scent. Try luxury home fragrance trusted by the pros by going to Centair.com and using promo code AMONGUS for an extra 25% off your first order. That's promo code among us for an extra 25% off your first order at centair.com. Joanne Huss's trial began on April 29th, 2008. She denied murdering her grandmother, Annie Garbutt. However, she admitted manslaughter on the grounds of diminished responsibility and pleaded guilty to perverting the course of justice. The manslaughter plea was not accepted by the Crown. James Goss QC opened for the prosecution, telling the jury that Hussey had killed her grandmother and tried to destroy the evidence. The prosecutor laid out what he believed happened late on the night of May 6th, 2007. Goss alleged that Hussey had left her 10-year-old daughter Josephine, who had complex care needs, at home alone while she drove out of Eden with a spade she had taken with her. Automatic number plate recognition cameras tracked her journey south towards Murfield. Hussey pulled into the clough where she had once lived. After switching off the engine, she quietly exited her car and walked up the drive. 
after letting herself into the cottage using a key entrusted to her by her vulnerable grandmother. She crept up the stairs and into the bedroom where Annie Garbutt was sleeping. Joanne Hussey then began hitting her grandmother multiple times with the spade. At some point during the attack, it was alleged that Hussey had sat or kneeled on Annie Garbutt's chest and continued to hit her with such force she shattered her nose, cheekbone, jaw and skull. The weight of a much heavier woman on top of a frail 76-year-old had broken her ribs and sternum. Afterwards, Hussey returned to her home in Yeadon, again being captured on ANPR cameras. There she attempted to clean the bloody spade used to bludgeon her grandmother to death by rinsing it off and pushing it into some soil before leaving it in the garage. Hussey got rid of her clothing which was bound to be covered in blood following the frenzied attack and washed the blood off herself in the bath. Despite her attempts to destroy the evidence, forensic technicians were able to find traces of Annie Garbutt's blood on the spade, in the bathtub, and on one item of clothing Joanne Hussey had neglected to throw away. No forensic evidence had been found in Hussey's car, so it was believed that she had cleaned it before driving back to Murfield the following morning, where she pretended to have stumbled upon her grandmother's battered body. Hussey waited for the first responders to arrive, and a paramedic entered the home. The prosecutor said, She led him into her grandmother's bedroom, where Annie Garbutt, who had suffered substantial facial wounds, lay in two pools of blood in the bed. The walls around the bed were splattered with blood. Although the defendant had suggested her grandmother had been the victim of a break-in, Joanne Hussey's criminal history and statements from friends and colleagues made her the lead suspect in the murder investigation. Investigators had become more suspicious when her alibi did not match the ANPR camera footage, and after searching her home in Yeadon, officers confronted her with the forensic evidence. James Goss QC told the court, In due course, the defendant admitted she had killed her grandmother in her bedroom by attacking her and using a spade. She told the doctor that she had been hearing voices in her head for about two weeks, telling her to get rid of bad people. They had told her to get rid of grandma, so she had hit her on the head. The blows were hard ones because the voices told her to do it harder and harder, then they told her to stop. The prosecutor argued that Joanne Hussey had invented the hallucinations as an excuse for killing her grandmother, and the evidence would show that she had a motive. Annie Garbutt owned her cottage, which was worth over £130,000. She also had over £100,000 in savings and investments. If Annie's family had followed the advice of social services and moved her into residential care, there would have been a lot less money for them to inherit. James Goss QC stated, This would have been costly but would have been funded from her savings and investments and, if necessary, from the sale of her house. 
The court was told that Maureen, Joanne Hussey's mother, the victim's only child, had been given power of attorney over Annie's finances in 2006. The prosecutor said, Over a year prior to Mrs. Garbutt's death, Maureen Hussey had withdrawn and transferred substantial sums from her mother's savings account, and we allege had simply helped herself to her mother's money. You will hear evidence of the defendant being very financially motivated, describing being a party to what was going on, namely the taking of her grandmother's money. Referring to the foreshadowing text message Joanne Hussey had sent to Salvatore Cremona one week before Annie Garbutt was killed, James Goss QC told the jury, She appears to have been anticipating what was to happen, or was it merely a macabre way of seeking attention? The prosecution acknowledged that Joanne Hussey had suffered with a psychiatric disorder in the past, but they did not accept it had been substantial enough to cause an abnormality of mind that would diminish her criminal responsibility. Goss told the court, The evidence of hearing voices depends entirely on her own word and was something she only raised after the killing. Some of Joanne Hussey's co-workers were called to testify for the prosecution about the defendant's behaviour and statements she had made to them before the murder. Dennis Bartholomew, who had worked with Hussey in the Royal Mail Sorting Office, said she had told him about money taken from her grandmother's bank account. He recalled Hussey mentioning sums of up to £20,000, stating... She was saying she wanted her to sign her assets to them and they could do what they wanted. They were being siphoned off a bit at a time. Dennis explained that Hussey had told him the money would be shared between her, her brother Richard and their mother Maureen. The witness told the court she was going to spend some of it on her house and get her teeth and hair done cosmetically. According to Dennis Bartholomew, Hussey had told him and others about an incident that occurred when she was driving her grandmother somewhere. Hussey had hit Annie and pulled her hair while they were in the car. Royal Mail postman Jamie Hill had been told the same story by Joanne Hussey. He had also witnessed Hussey attacking Gary Punchin in the sorting office. Ian Robinson who had been in a brief relationship with the accused, testified that she had a quick temper and would become verbally abusive and aggressive over something minor. Joanne Hussey's former partner and father of her child, Gary Punchin, also took the stand. He testified that he had met Hussey in 1994 and recounted how her mental state worsened after their daughter was born and discussed Hussey's suicide attempts. When Gary testified about Hussey stabbing him in the back during an argument in 2005, Hussey shouted liar from the dock. He also said that Maureen had told him about Hussey hitting her grandmother. According to Gary Punchin, Hussey and her mother often spoke about Annie Garbutt's money, and were concerned they wouldn't get it. 
Joanne once told me she thought her grandmother was worth £100,000 plus the house. She had money stashed away in lots of different accounts. They didn't want to lose it by her going into a home. Gary was also present when Hussey and Maureen discussed how it would be better if Annie died. Ideally, she'd fall down the stairs, one allegedly said. Detective Inspector John Priestley later told the court that Annie Garbutt did not have a will, and that if she died, her estate would have been left to her only surviving child, Maureen Hussey. The jury heard that the defendant had tried to convince her mother, brother and a friend to lie for her and say that she had told them she was hearing voices to bolster the claim of diminished responsibility. Joanne Hussey's brother Richard testified that he had received a phone call while she was on remand in New Hall Prison. Richard told the court, She asked me to lie for her. She asked me to lie in court to verify that she was hearing voices. I didn't see anything to verify she was hearing voices. Phyllis Easton, a long-time friend of Maureen's who went by the name Pat, had also been asked to lie for Hussey. Pat told the court that after Maureen had called her about Annie's death, Maureen said her daughter was afraid and was willing to pay someone to lie for her. Pat accompanied Maureen during a visit to see Hussey in Newhall Prison while she was on remand, and Pat said Hussey would go on to offer her £1,000 to say she had mentioned hearing voices before the murder. Pat said, She asked us both to lie for her, but I wasn't going to lie, and Maureen wasn't going to do it. Maureen did say she was that desperate. She would pay someone to lie. Corroborating the testimony provided by Pat Easton, a call between Joanne and Maureen Hussey made on August 14, 2007, was played to the court. On the call, Joanne could be heard saying, I asked her to do it because she said she would. Tell her I'll give her £1,000. Maureen responded, I'll pass it on, but I think she's frightened. If you are found to be lying on oath, it's perjury. During the same call, Hussey complained about being in a cell near Sharon Wright, a 23-year-old woman who had been sentenced to life in prison four days earlier for killing her four-year-old daughter, Letitia. During cross-examination, Pat Easton was asked if Hussey had told her about hearing voices when they were travelling in a car together a few days before the murder. When Pat said that she hadn't, Joanne Hussey's counsel Neil Davey QC suggested it might be possible she hadn't heard Hussey over the noise of the car. Joanne Hussey's consultant psychiatrist Dr Thomas Hughes was then called to testify. He told the court that he had seen the defendant on a number of occasions between August 2006 and April 27, 2007 when she said that she felt much better and hadn't needed her medication for about a month. 
Huss's blood was tested by forensic phlebotomy expert Brian Johnson, and it was identified there were no recreational or prescribed drugs in her system, meaning she hadn't taken her medication for some time. Forensic physician Dr. David Lord had been tasked with examining Hussey after her arrest in May 2007. He recalled Hussey telling him she had been hearing voices for two weeks. Dr. Lord thought she was, quote, logical, with rational thought processes that were inconsistent with the symptoms she described. Hussey did not exhibit symptoms of someone who was experiencing auditory hallucinations. Dr. Lord said, If a person is hearing voices, they are distracted. They talk nonsense and don't answer the question that has been given. But she had none of that. In a taped phone call between Joanne Hussey and her mother that was played for the court... Hussey could be heard saying she was worried about what Dr. Lord had to say. Psychiatrist Dr. Berry was called to the stand to testify about Hussey's claims of memory loss and how she only remembered the murder due to flashbacks. James Goss QC asked Dr. Berry if Hussey could be lying about the amnesia, and the psychiatrist replied, Yes, I think that is a very realistic explanation for it. I can't come up with another explanation. Dr. Berry also spoke about Hussey's claims of hearing voices when he told the court, It is impossible to perform tests and observations on whether someone can hear voices. In the vast majority of cases you are relying on what someone tells you. Memory loss is very common in these cases often as a result of alcohol or drug use. But it is correct that her own view isn't very common. It is not typical. I've certainly never seen it before. Evidence was also presented in which Hussey had told a mental health worker that her grandmother spoke about wanting help to die. A video recording was played to the court of a visit between Maureen and Joanne Hussey while Hussey was in police custody on May 10th, 2007. Maureen asked Hussey what she had done, and with her hands over her face, Joanne whispered, I didn't know I'd done it. I just had this flashback last night. I remembered hitting her with the spade. In hushed voices, they went on to talk about Annie Garbutt's money. Maureen voiced concern about her access to the funds and what the authorities might learn. After Hussey apologised and suggested her mother tell the police that Annie had given Maureen the money, Maureen displayed a disturbing indifference to her mother's murder and implied that she had it coming. Maureen said... I'm not bothered about your grandma, Joe. It's you and Josephine. You don't have to be sorry. Your grandmother was horrible. Horrible. I can't believe what that woman's caused. Don't feel bad about what you've done, Joe. Not one bit. By all accounts, Sunny Garbutt was regarded as a kind person who never had any issues with her friends or neighbours. 
Neither Maureen nor Joanne Hussey explained their hatred for Annie at the trial. One year and one day after allegedly murdering her grandmother, Joanne Hussey took the stand. Discussing her own mental health history, Hussey said that the depression she developed while pregnant worsened and her temper flared after her daughter was diagnosed with severe developmental delay. Hussey described how difficult it was to take care of a child with disabilities. While speaking about her relationship troubles, Hussey said that both she and Gary had been violent at times. She suggested that her lack of confidence and low self-esteem was what led to the multiple affairs she had with co-workers at the post office because they made her feel wanted. During questioning about her relationship with Annie Garbutt, Hussey said that she loved her grandmother and used to take her out shopping or to the hairdresser. Although Maureen provided most of Annie's care, Hussey said she would sometimes look after her grandmother, helping her get dressed and brushing her hair. We were really close because I was always her favourite one, Hussey remarked. A close family friend, Jean Evans, had also told the court, Joanne was everything to her grandma. She was the apple of Annie's eye. Hussey claimed that her grandmother's dementia meant that she would become aggressive, and Annie had hit her a number of times. Referring to the incident that had been mentioned by her co-workers where she had struck and pulled her grandmother's hair, Hussey said that they had got it wrong. She claimed that it was Annie who had been hitting her repeatedly as she was driving. In an attempt to get her grandmother to stop, she had pulled her hair. Hussey claimed she felt bad about it afterwards. On the stand, the defendant maintained that the voices she had been hearing since April 2007 increased in the days before she killed her grandmother. She said she had been too embarrassed to tell her mother or anyone else about what was happening. Following a lengthy break from work and with mounting mortgage repayments, Hussey said she had lied to her psychiatrist, Dr. Hughes, so she wouldn't have to take medication and could return to work. While the defendant tried to highlight her mental health struggles and how much she loved her grandmother, the court heard that Hussey told people she wouldn't visit Annie if she refused to give her money. Hussey knew how much it would hurt Annie if she did not have company especially her granddaughter. After 11 days of legal proceedings, the jury of seven women and five men were sent out to deliberate. They returned less than two hours later with a unanimous verdict. Hussey stood in the dock with her eyes fixed on the floor as the word guilty was announced. Presiding Judge Scott Wollstoneholm told her, You probably know that the sentence for murder is fixed by law. The only sentence that can be passed is one of life imprisonment. The judge explained that although there was a mandatory life sentence, 
he would have to set the minimum term she would have to serve. He then adjourned the sentencing until a full psychiatric report could be prepared. Speaking outside the courtroom after the verdict, Detective Superintendent Andy Brennan considered Annie Garbutt's murder a brutal and callous crime. Quote, As the investigation developed, a clear picture emerged of Joanne Hussey. Firstly, she was an accomplished liar, and for a number of days quite brazenly denied any involvement in her grandmother's death until all of the evidence became overwhelmingly clear to her that she had nowhere to turn. Secondly, she would stop at nothing to avoid being prosecuted and ultimately convicted by attempting to get her family and friends to tell lies to the police on her behalf. It is my belief Annie Garbutt was brutally killed because Joanne Hussey was motivated by greed. Annie would still have been alive today had Joanne Hussey not been concerned about her grandmother's personal finances being used to ultimately look after her. Annie's brutal death was a tragic end to her life at the hands of her own granddaughter. On June 11, 2008, Joanne Hussey was brought back to Leeds Crown Court to be sentenced. She stood expressionless in the dock as she was addressed by Judge Wollstonehome. When your grandmother became increasingly disabled and in need of specialist medical care, you and your mother became concerned that your grandmother's savings, which were considerable, would be depleted by the costs of care. You were in difficulties financially. You were worried about losing your job and caring for your severely disabled daughter. It's clear that you wanted your grandmother's money to be available for you and your mother. You began to contemplate your grandmother's death as a way out of that dilemma. You mentioned on occasion that it would be better if she just fell down the stairs. By texting a friend days before you killed her that your grandmother was dead was an attempt to elicit sympathy, but already the fate of a violent death for her was in your mind. You expected to gain from her death, not you directly, but through your mother, thus indirectly your grandmother's money would be available to you. The expectation of gain was a primary motive for this murder. You demonstrated no remorse. You told your mother you didn't feel sorry about what you did to your grandmother. The judge had to consider any mitigating factors in the case alongside Joanne Huss's criminal history. A psychological report concluded that Hussey expressed no regret about the killing and was only worried about her own situation. However, Judge Wollstonehome accepted that Hussey had bipolar disorder and it had played a part in her prior convictions and the crime she was being sentenced for. The judge said, I have no doubt that you were suffering from mental illness at the time of the killing. Mental illness was a factor in your committing the murder. The bipolar disorder is an important mitigating factor in this case, as it appears to have developed after the birth of your severely disabled daughter. Your life was difficult and stressful because your responsibility for your child and your illness made it difficult for you to sustain friendships. 
The minimum term Joanne Hussey would have to serve in prison was reduced from 30 years to 20 years, with credit for the 397 days she had spent on remand. She would be eligible for parole in almost 19 years. Hussey was also ordered to serve a concurrent 12-month sentence for perverting the course of justice by trying to get people to lie for her. So where are we now? During the investigation into Annie Garbutt's murder, the detectives uncovered the fact that her daughter Maureen Hussey had withdrawn large amounts of cash from Annie's accounts over a 10-month period. Maureen had been given power of attorney over her mother's financial affairs in May 2006. After Annie's murder, fraud investigators from Bradford and Bingley Building Society and Halifax Bank contacted the police to tell them about some suspicious activity. On June 23, 2008, one week after her daughter had been sentenced to life in prison, Maureen Hussey was warned that she could be joining her. The 56-year-old appeared at Bradford Crown Court before Judge Wollstoneheim and pleaded guilty to 13 charges of theft between August 2006 and March 2007. Money totalling £17,180 had been withdrawn or moved between accounts in amounts of £750 to £4,000. The prosecutor Robin Fries told the court that Maureen had been made her mother's power of attorney at a time when Annie was still competent. Maureen had been told by her mother's solicitor that she had to inform the court of protection if her mother's condition deteriorated, but Maureen failed to do so and began moving money into her own bank account. The prosecutor said, The defendant was told she could recover only out-of-pocket expenses and was not entitled to funds for her own benefit. After Joanne Hussey was arrested for murder, conversations between her and her mother were recorded. On June 10th, 2007, Hussey was heard telling her mother to inform the police that Annie wanted her to have the money. When Maureen was eventually arrested for theft, she told investigators that she had spent the money on her mother's care needs, including transport and food. It was not theft, Maureen said. She told me to take it. However, the court heard that she later admitted this was a lie, and she did steal some of the money. Maureen Hussey pleaded not guilty to eight more charges of theft, and perverting the course of justice in regards to the murder of her mother. Ultimately, it was decided the further theft charges would lie on file after the prosecutor explained it wouldn't be in the public interest to have a trial. The total amount believed to have been stolen was around £22,000, although it was accepted that some of the money could have been used for Annie's care. The prosecutor went on to say the Crown would be applying for a confiscation order under the Proceeds of Crime Act. 
as Maureen Hussey sat in the dock with her hands clasped across her lap. The judge announced it would not be in the public interest to go to trial for the charge of perverting the course of justice. According to Judge Wollstoneholm, testimony at Joanne Hussey's trial had shown that her mother Maureen had been reluctant to be involved in her lies and had encouraged her daughter not to bribe anyone. Sentencing was adjourned in regards to the initial theft charges for which Maureen had pleaded guilty. Probation reports would be prepared. Maureen Hussey was brought to Leeds Crown Court for a sentencing hearing on July 25, 2008. Judge Wollstoneholm told Maureen that her crime was especially serious because she had exploited someone vulnerable due to their age and health. Quote, When people abuse other people's trust, and those other people are vulnerable as your mother was, there is no alternative to a prison sentence. Another side of the case is your own daughter, serving a life sentence, as herself a severely disabled daughter. You had power of attorney for your mother quite properly because she wanted your assistance to help her with her financial affairs in her declining years. No doubt you intended to do that honestly, but within a month or two you were helping yourself to her money dishonestly. You must have realised that you would be discovered. Your life turned upside down when your own daughter murdered your mother. It is not suggested that you had anything to do with that. Following that, when interviewed by police, you lied about what was going on. It was only when you pleaded guilty at this court that you acknowledged it. Judge Wollstoneholm sentenced Maureen Hussey to 50 weeks in prison, but decided to suspend the sentence for two years as Maureen's granddaughter who was in her care would be affected by her absence. He said... I am satisfied that if that little girl cannot rely on you, her life would be devastated. The judge spoke about the money Maureen had stolen from her mother and ordered her to repay the £17,000 and cover the costs of her defence and the prosecution totalling £7,000. He stated... This was money that in the end may well have come to you when your mother died of natural causes, had her life not been brutally cut short. But it isn't right you should benefit at all by what you've done. There is no reason why now you are going to inherit your mother's money. The taxpayer should fund the cost of the case. Maureen's barrister Anastasis Tassu told the court that as Maureen had acquired her mother's estate, she would have no problem paying the costs. In May 2012, an independent investigation into Joanne Huss's mental health care was conducted by Veretta, who had been commissioned by NHS Yorkshire and the Humber. The investigation concluded that there was no way that the care team overseeing Hussey, who was called Miss A in the report, could have foreseen her actions. The author wrote, We are absolutely clear there is no evidence that anyone involved with Miss A's care and treatment could have anticipated that Miss A was capable of carrying out the murder of her grandmother. 
It is very unlikely that anything could have been done by trust staff that would have changed the course of events. Joanne Hussey will be eligible for parole in 2026. Thank you for listening. A special thanks to our new Patreon producer, Lynn Metcalf, and all our patrons for their support. For more information on this episode, please see the show notes or visit our website, theywalkamonguspodcast.com. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.